You're listening to The Dude Grow Show, coming straight out of Denver, Colorado, bringing you marijuana grow knowledge, news, and culture. At the tone, the time will be 4.20. Exactly. Alright guys, we're back. We're back to drop some science here. Uh, we got Jacob from Growmore. How you doing, Jacob? Hey, I'm doing pretty well, guys. How are you? Alright. Excellent. Excellent. What are we gonna what, what kind of science are we gonna drop today? Well, I'm thinking, due to the popularity and effectiveness of recharge, um, kind of get into a little bit of the science behind beneficial bacteria and fungi, how those microbes work in conjunction with, uh, you know, pathogen control and prevention and maybe throw in a little bit uh, of science and how those beneficials interact with some of the other liquids that uh, you guys use and other products that are out there in the market. I love it because, I mean, I know that these beneficials work. I, you know, I can't really understand or completely comprehend the deep science of, of what they're actually doing inside the soil, but I'll be damned if I know they work, man, so... Well, I mean, it's an extremely complex subject, just beneficial microbe science in general. Yeah, that's why I, I try not to I'll, pretend that I understand it. <laughs> yeah, but you know, a lot of times I think the oversimplification of it with those in the hydro industry actually gets to the bare bones of what's really important about it. And understanding the complex matter isn't really great, but uh, um, if you can understand different growing methodologies with beneficial microbes and where, you know, pH, uh, nutrient levels, bioavailability of nutrients are totally different um, across different soils and how the microbes actually hone them in and create an environment that brings them in, an, in, in a value uh, that's consistent is, is really what's important. You know? Yeah, I mean, I am, I mean, I've always heard the rap on microbes for years and years back is, oh, they don't play well with chemical fertilizers. As soon as you put salt on, they, they kill the microbes or at least make them dormant. How, let's well, start. Let's Scotty's start there. The, you're a fan of trichoderma too, so I'd like to hear about some, yeah, some stuff on trichoderma because we oh, yeah. definitely have trichoderma and recharge, and I, I'm a fan too, but I'd like to know more about it. Uh, and the favorite thing on trichoderma is to have people, you know, that you know, that really just go to the the forums say, oh, trichoderma and mycorrhizae, man, they outcompete each other, man. You, you can't use trichoderma; it's no good. Elaine Ingham says so, man. <laughs> to be honest, I mean. There's some truth to some arguments when you talk about microbial populations and who's trying to dominate one over the other, but typically right. you find beneficial, you know, bacillus bacterial strains, spores will will overtake, and it's not that they overtake anything, it's just how fast do they reproduce and colonate an uh, environment. And unfortunately, what we've found um, through a lot of research is, is that the beneficial bacteria bacillus-based products end up... Uh, uh, outcompete some of the other fungal spore um, uh, re- reproduction and population growth um, faster. And so a lot of times they're not necessarily taking them out. They're just colonizing at such a fast rate and in, in such a greater volume that sometimes the trichoderma kind of get um, 
you know, set aside, which is why I'll always say using trichoderma uh, mycorrhizal-based inoculants initially when they can colonize and grow on the roots as they develop uh, is the most efficient application of it. And then later on inoculating with uh, bacteria. So I won't name any names for companies out there um, specifically, but there are some products, beneficial microbes, that combine both the bacillus and the uh, fungal spores. And again, to each his own, it's going to make, it's, it's better than not using it. However, the way that you have it going on with the recharge, separating the trichoderma with the mycorrhiza together and initially inoculating with that, bring in the bacillus later and, and it's, it's more. But we can get a little bit more into how trichoderma um, is a free living fungi and, and how they kind of work in the root zone. And again, you know, Pythium, Phytophthora, all these root mold um, fungal pathogens are in the root disease are, are almost not necessarily alleviated, but they're under control much more when using these microbes. So. Yeah, I, I just say, say it's like the no vacancy sign is hung out. You know, there's just no room for them to get started, man. Where's your soundboard, Scotty? Come on, we got we got to hit up some drop in science here. Do you have that going on yet? This is a very <laughs> serious conversation here. Anytime I hang with Jake, I, I got to do what I can. I don't even smoke bong hits beforehand, man. I gotta, oh, man. I, I got to do what I can to hang on here and understand, man. Because right. homie drops the science and talks in a language that uh, I, I get one out of every four or five words, man. You know? I'll, I'll it's about to be one It's going to be 120 in about four minutes, so it will be 420 somewhere. <laughs> Damn straight, <laughs> man. All right. Four minutes, people. Hey, if you hear bubbling going on in the background, uh, I, I plead the fifth, man. All right, man. So I'd like to just let you talk, if I could, Jake. Man, it seems like you've definitely got a, a firm understanding and an opinion on on uh, adding, you know, the beneficials uh, with, you know, I mean, what you're doing. You're, you're you're doing a synthetic nutrient over there. So I'd love to hear your take on on how they work together. Well, you know, at Growmore too, you know, we, we, we do incorporate some of our liquid line, like the Avalanche that you promote and the Jumpstart. They're sure. synthetic and organic blend, they're blends in my mind. And essentially, we're trying to put back, and this leads into the beneficials, into a more inert, soilless media. We'll just use cocoa to get an environment that is more recreated that would be a nature found, right? Sure. So essentially, you know, you want to include some organics and some synthetics. Uh, some people can go all organic. It's more for a reason for their philosophy, and there's nothing wrong with that. Some people just have uh, uh, certain genetics that respond better to different sorts of feeds, and, and I get that. So whether or not that's right or wrong, we're going to get into another conversation about organics and synthetics and heavy metal counts in another, uh, another drop-in-science segment in a week or two. But I want to come back to um, essentially – uh, you know, the microbes and essentially how many, you know, biocontrol agents are going to perform when, when used effectively. So interject anytime you want, guys, and I'm just going to kind of ramble off and, and get some, some right. info out there. So Dropping signs like Galileo dropped an orange, man. Let's do it. <laughs> there you go. Soundboard on All the right. fly. Well, you know, what's obviously really clear about beneficial microbes, you, you talk in, 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 in ag and in agronomy, botanists will say that obviously the use of beneficial microbes are main control, bacillus thuringiensis, you know, BT, been used for years in controlling pathogens, right? They want to get rid of pythium, they want to get rid of phytophthora, they want to get rid of fusarium, um, and these are all root diseases. So, I'd say, again, getting back to what you said, with, when used in combination with uh, the recharge and, and, and a carbohydrate-based source like a kelp, you know, they got really, really white, healthy roots. Well, of course they are because they're eradicating and helping to control all those, you know, um, 
the, the pathogens controls. So uh, beyond just controlling those pathogens, the use of beneficial microbes um, also enhances yields through hormone stimulation, enzyme production, and other mechanisms. You know, um, the same can't be said if you're using sterilization methods such as uh, the hydrogen peroxide or the oxygen rush or other products relating to that. Right. Uh, anyone using UV light cleaners for their water, you know, they're killing all these things. Yeah, so, that's a totally different philosophy, man. Old school, man. Old school. So, I mean, it's generally agreed that, uh, you know, these, these inoculants control diseases more stably under better controllable conditions than in the open field, which is why it's so hard to recreate an environment in an, a 2,000-acre plot using beneficial microbes than it is in an indoor garden or a greenhouse setup or somewhere where you have uh, much more control. And again, we obviously have to look at the life cycle of the plants most of your you know, growers are growing, and these being a very short life cycle annual need to get all the help they can get. Um, yes, especially when we're pushing the life cycle that's normally nine months outside into three months inside. You know, so we're talking about a, a 30% length of time for that the plant really wants to grow. So again, getting back to it needs a lot of help. Um, so the, the hydroponic systems are going to offer a real unique environment for controlling pathogens since a lot of these, these, these things can be managed um, to favor these friendly microorganisms over these pathogenic ones. And that's so just, to, just to clarify real quick, you, you said hydroponic, and I'm thinking yeah. you're including cocoa in there, right? Yeah, you know, that's kind of the term I think that gets thrown around a little too loosely, and I've, I've fallen into that trap, and you just caught me right there. You know, anytime I use the word hydroponic um, in the industry, most people want to include soilless medias, even when you're using uh, gravel or hydrogen, um, ebb and flow systems, or just a drip system in a Beto bucket. Right. Um, you know, straight perlite, a lot of guys are doing, um, but including cocoa with the soilless media. So, again, hydroponics working with water. Um, most growers that are growing outside, a lot of them use a sunshine number four mix or a sure. peat based mix. I mean, these are all not, this is, these aren't soil. You know, so it's hard to say, oh, I'm growing this, you know, soil growing. And again, this is beneficial across the board um, of, uh, of, of all different kinds of medias. So again, using hydroponics in the term of, of you know, growing Jamaican tomatoes is just easier when you deal with the ag industry that, uh, you know, kind of doesn't understand it. So, all right. Again. Okay. But, but, uh, so we're talking, when we talk hydroponics, so we say hydroponics slash soilless, we can assume that in our heads? Yes, yes, exactly. Anytime I say the word hydroponic, you, I'm just using that for specific content regarding soilless media, even including soil at this point. But a lot of guys, like I said, aren't using just, you know, uh, an ocean forest or and anything. Uh, uh, you know, they're, they're mixing it up, whether they're using Pro Mix or, or Sunshine Number 4. Again, these aren't really soils. I still consider it more of a hydroponic media because of its water retention, aeration right. capacity. And again, we're putting them in containers, and it's not natural open soil in ground, you know. So yeah. very few people are planting in the ground and growing in soil. So I would say yeah. even any kind of container gardening, it falls into this hydroponic because we're controlling the feed and we're controlling what's happening within this five-gallon container, right? Absolutely. Um, oh, so, you be, are you taking a smoke break, Scotty, real quick? You I sounded noticed, short of breath there. I just noticed it was – no, I'm sorry. That was the soundboard. I got the okay, soundboard going. Cool, cool. All right. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't really want to get too deep into them again, but we talk about, um, you know, pythium, 
Uh, again, it's a generic name for describing a large number of these water molds and damping off fungi, right? So pythium and, and these fungal spores you get a lot initially when you transplant, um, not so much towards uh, you know the very end of your life cycle. But these are the things that the, the pythium to us looks like you go in one day and one of your plants looks like crap. You come back the next day and it's dead. Come back the next day if you're in like a deep water culture, any kind of recirculating system, and your whole crop is gone. Just everything's dead. That's how fast something like Pythium you know, wipes out a crop. So to have an insurance policy or to make sure you don't have it is absolutely, you know, just absolutely imperative. Yeah, Pythium, that's great. Crop failure is the number one thing I hear from a lot of guys in Colorado that I consult with doing large commercial grows. And essentially a lot of that has to do with these pathogenic fungal spores and not necessarily pythium as much maybe as phytophthora uh, that's a real aggressive plant pathogen pythium um, when I use the word pythium I'm kind of describing uh, I'll describe many rhizosphere pathogens which is like root root you know pathogens as pythiums so um, it's a little bit easier for me instead of saying you know fusarium oxysporum you just say fusarium you know because these sure. are all the genus and species of, of different things these are all just basic genus stuff sure uh, well, I fought that fusarium out in, out of my palm tree and bamboo farm man That's oh a right bitch. okay yeah I mean it's a common soil fungus and it can become a, a, a pathogen and cause of a wide variety of these wilt diseases you know so you call them fusarium wilts so that's the thing you're like what the hell is wrong with my plant it's just like it, I've watered it yesterday it looks like it's completely you know devoid of all this water so you get wilting you get yellowing of leaves chlorosis you get premature leaf drop uh, stunting damping off and this all happens pretty quick but again yeah. phytophthora happens really fast and these are all things that recharge beneficials in, in combination with other um, um, inoculants are going to help avoid. Yeah, right? phytophthora so, is like the Ebola of plants, man. Dude, literally meaning plant destroyer, literally. Wow. Yeah. yeah and I never see when I used to run um, water farms and deep water culture in systems that I ran more sterile than not. Um, I would have that sometimes, like Scotty was saying. I like all of a sudden I'd go in and then bam, the next light cycle, like three plants are just totally dead. And it's like, how does mm -hmm. that happen so quick? Something viral, usually, that I could not put my finger on in the system or the water. Bacterial, um, man. I never see it, though, in my soil, soilless mixes, my container gardening. And, I mean, that's, I'm assuming wise, because I'm always inoculating now. I'm always using as much, you know, soil, beneficial bacteria, microbes I can. So, it's like you said, the no vacancy signs up. So, I could point my finger at it more. You could also see your roots really well in hydro systems. Mm -hmm. you just look at them and know it's kind of hard sometimes and. uh your soilless mixes, but yeah, I definitely think that was part of the issue in the sense there's nothing. When something bad shows up, it parties. Oh man! You yeah. know that's a great the, the good point you just made. It's like trying to go you know sterilization argument. You know I uh, I was just spent some time in a hospital and you see how much a hospital tries to contain and make an environment very sterile, but that's not even 100% foolproof all the time either. So you know it's almost better to in an environment where you know. You know, there's all these spores blowing around. You're breathing them in and out. Uh, it's impossible to avoid it. And so trying to create an media, an environment that's completely sterile is, uh, I'll just say it's idiotic because it's never attainable. There's always going to be something. So instead of, like you said, you know, trying to shut the party down, there's always going to be that last guy that's like, no, I'm going to stick around. I'm not leaving yet. You <laughs> know what? Keep that party going until friggin' 24-7. You know what I'm saying? Just invite as many beneficials as you can to it. Right. And then you don't have to worry about it because trying to get rid of everybody at the end of the day it's, it's almost an impossible task yeah my cousin's coming in an hour homie 
man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Keep it on, man. Come on. So, um, okay. Obviously, we just talked a little bit about water molds. Uh, we talked about some soil funguses, the fusarium you had with the, you know, uh, your, your bamboo trees. Sure. Um, you know, Pythium is the most common root disease found in hydroponics. Um, they attack the root system and severely limit the plant's ability to uptake nutrients or any kind of food, which ultimately means unhealthy crop and a low yield. Not good when you are, you know, growing. So usually you see a brown root system. That's how you notice it. Their roots aren't very healthy and white. Um, musty smell as the root system kind of decays. Now there's normal die-off for roots that are close to what we call the drip zone right around the base where the root, uh, after let's say your rock wool cube, you transplant into a cocoa um, container and you kind of see the roots. The roots are going to die off and the root tips at the bottom of your pot um, are going to obviously be where they're, they're picking up and feeding. So normal breaking down of roots as the plant ages and progresses is normal. What you don't want to see is, uh, you know, that happening immediately right away. So, um, you know, again, if your crop's healthy and you're inoculating a lot, the pythium and these fungal spores have a harder time latching on. Uh, you know, they take hold of a weak stress crop much more easily, just like humans. When you have an infant and elderly people, they're much more susceptible to the flu virus because their bodies can't kind of fight it off. So, again, if you are starting with a healthy crop and you're, you know, of of, of good health and, and taking your supplements and, and not putting yourself in that kind of arena, you know, you're, you're much easier to fight that off. Um, yeah, it sure does yeah, make you, sense, man. Yeah, you but, see it um, everywhere in nature. You just look at nature. I mean, it's how it, how it works, to, the survival of the fittest, and when something bad comes, you should be healthy to handle it. So. Mm -hmm. So again, pythium are water molds. So untreated water, this is for growers that are maybe doing depot scenes or that are just like, you know, finding their stream or dam water and um, sometimes even like well water. Um, they're high-risk products because of these water molds in it. So if you're going to use that, you've got to sterilize it prior to use. And um, again, rainwater too should really be treated because of the likelihood of it collecting like wind-blown soil and all these contaminants, again, that are blowing all the way around. So... How do we control these things? The few main strategies are just increasing uh, the level by addition of these antagonistic microorganisms. And again, these are the fighters of them that we're talking about. Um, using a mix of these microorganisms that, uh, that kind of complement what media you're using. And then again, amending the substrates and nutrients to, to favor the development of these. So because we talk again about controlling the environment and having a unique situation where we can have more control over the pathogens since these things can be, can be uh, managed more easily. Um, we're, we're going to be able to prevent all that harmful, that harmful damage to the crop. So, um, you know, I think we'll, we'll talk about it real quick. So competition for nutrients, people say, Oh, don't use that because these certain nutrients are killing off. Uh, you know, your beneficials, it's not helping. Yeah, I always hear that, man. Well, you know, um, I always hear salt, for, you, salt kills, you know, I always hear salt kills. Uh, I mean, certainly it, it, anyway, I'll let you go. Well, no, I mean, it's like that argument. I was just talking to someone today that did an organic farm in a community supported ag, a CSA. And it's almost like, you know, the monopotassium phosphate that people are saying is a synthetic salt nutrient is all mined from the ground. And at the end of the day, we'll just use nitrogen. If you're using blood meal and the uh, microorganisms and the over time is being broken down, that element of N uh, that's being taken up into the root is the same element of 
and night that the nitrates converted into the ground when you water with it that's being taken up by the plant so the root zone doesn't recognize whether something's organic and synthetic which we'll you know talk about in another conversation right but um you know the salt isn't necessarily killing them either uh you know just the concentration of ec electrical conductivity being so high it's just there's a frequency that they're not really feeling um but again these microorganisms are sharing the same uh, space uh, and ecological niche and having the same physiological requirements and resources are limited. So they got to feed just like anything else, which is why carbohydrates are so important to them. Now, assuming your root zone is trying to take up these carbohydrates, well, again, your microorganisms also want to take up and feed off these carbohydrates. Um, so again, talking about organic versus the base of everything is just carbon. So competition for the nutrients, especially for carbon, is common in all you know in in the soils and other media, right. and uh, really inhibits the fungal spore germination when there's a lot of competition going on. So you know, competition for nutrients is one of the many modes of action of these many beneficial microbes. Um, so. We talk about, uh, I'm just trying to think where to go from here, really. Well, I can um, tell you, what What about, I mean, in a nutshell, I don't know if you answered it fully directly, but so is it worth it? Um, I mean, I'm going to say I would think yes when you're using whatever, new chemical two-part out there, using uh, GH's three-part or whatever to spend Romore's three-part. Romore's three-part, dude. Hey, hey you got to yeah. send us some of that. We got a bunch of people that want to try that Romore three-part, man. So I would definitely want to oh, okay, yeah, it works. I'll get, I'll get you some of that. But I'm sorry, dude. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, just, I mean, is it still totally worth using uh, beneficial inoculants when you're in everything else, let's say, in your regimen? You use a bloom booster, a high phosphorus bloom booster. You use chemical-based nutrients. You use chemical additives. Uh, is it still worth your money to be inoculating with beneficial microbes? All right. Well, you know, because not everybody out there uses grow more nutrients and I can't really attest to the, we're going to talk a little bit about the, you bring up a great point. So, uh, there's a bunch of different phosphorus sources, right? There's, um, yeah. you know, uh, aluminum phosphate, um, phosphates that are, uh, non-available, non-bioavailable phosphates, um, in an organic, in, in, and in organic form um, and essentially depending on what the fertilizer you're using may have some of these really uh, poorly soluble phosphorus sources. Um, so another really key function of these fungal spores is they increase the uptake of this poorly soluble pea sources, right? So um, the fungal spore is going to colonize the root cortex of this plant, and then the fungi are able to acquire this organic carbon as food to build the infrastructure for the phosphorus uptake and then transporting it into the plant, right? And so the mycorrhizal system is able to take up that phosphorus more efficiently and transport it over longer distances than the plant root system, overcoming the phosphorus depletion in soil. So are those reasons why, is it safe to say, I always tell people if you're inoculating, uh, you can get away with, not a lot, and you got to see how hungry your plant is. But I feel like I use less nutrient with a, a inoculated soil because more of it's becoming available to the plant through all the work that's going on. I mean, is that kind of correct it, in a that, nutshell? That, that's very that's that's very correct in a nutshell. And then we talked a little bit about pea. I'll touch on it again. Why also you got to watch it with uh, with nitrogen because the fungal spores also acquire a substantial quantity of nitrogen from organic sources and play a real important role in the nitrogen cycle. So. You know, um, the the inorganic nitrogen that's released from 
you know, decomposing organic matter before the roots can acquire it, right. pass some of this onto the plants as uh, amino acid, arginine, right? And additionally, um, ammonium nitrate. There's a, a plant ammonium transporter that is mycorrhiza-specific and preferentially activated um, in cells has been discovered. So, you know, they're, they're finding now that the nitrogen transfer to the plant in this way is operating in a similar manner to the phosphorus uh, transfer. So when you talk about it this way, shit, the uh, fungi sounds pretty impressive. So, you know, this is all good. You can pull back. Again, the benefits of the fungi are greatest in systems where the inputs of phosphorus are low. Right. So heavy usage of phosphorus can inhibit the colonization and growth of it. And as the soil phosphorus levels, you know, available to the plant increases, the amount of phosphorus also increases in the plant tissues and the carbon drain on the plant by the fungi symbiosis becomes non-beneficial to the plant. So again, with that being said, we obviously just talked about not having to use as much phosphorus and nitrogen because the plant's taking up more of it, which is totally true. Of course, when you get later on and you're using these bloom boosters like a 0-50-30, like a hula bloom, or you're using a cool bloom, you're using a, a beastie bloom, you're using right. a moab, anything like that, of course it's going to inhibit that mycorrhizal colonization and growth, which is why, again, transplanting, inoculating your plants very early on and veg through like week four or five is really important before those heavy blasts of phosphorus come in. Because once once the uh, mycorrhizal spores made root zone contact, it's being carried into that super highway of the plant and it's dragging along with it. Um, again, the phosphorus can just inhibit the growth. It doesn't stop the growth. It just, uh, you know, it doesn't make it around, make it as great and, and as easy to colonize. Right. Well, at that point in your plant's life cycle, it's already done its job. It's already inoculated. It's already colonized as much as it can. So it doesn't necessarily matter as much. Um, Yep, let that micro grow along with your root systems. Get it on where your roots are small. It's got a little bit of a, a surface area to cover, and then you, it inoculates. And as your roots grow, that micro's growing right on in with it, man. And I definitely think in, in, in hydroponics and, you know, Jamaican tomato growing, as I call it, in general, there's in the industry, <laughs> there's an overabundance played and, and an overimportance played on the pea element. You know, I feel like potassium later on in flowering is much more beneficial to overall yield and flower quality than phosphorus is but it's just this this mindset in the industry like oh i've got to use a 0 50 30 or i need like a you know a 185 liquid mid-stage bloom stimulator i need a 0 10 10 you know right. what i mean so sure you know that, that that's just kind of what we deal with and you know again dealing with a lot of people in ag you try to tell them hey you shouldn't be using xyz well i'm going to use it because my daddy used it and my grandpa used it and just works for them and it works for me <laughs> sure like, all right that's good so when you learn how to grow and your 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 you know don juan the grower says hey this is your feed schedule this is that this you know and it works for you most likely you're going to continue to use that and really not hear anything anyone else says because yeah you know it works for me well again with the price of produce going down and the you know ability to uh compete you know you got to really pay attention to what your inputs are because of the costs and uh that that's kind of where where a lot of people using mycorrhizal inoculants, uh, using uh, amino acid or certain chelates um, are going to help fulvic acids because you're not going to have to use as much nutrients either that's going to be uh, available to the plant, right? Yeah, it's exactly how I learned these tricks, man, you know, with, with, the, with the recharges through my bamboo farm, man, through trying not to buy, you know, eight, nine pallets of fertilizer at a time, man. Now, what so about, guess, uh, yeah, go ahead. No, no, please. I was what just going to say, the... yeah, okay, you go, Brett. 
a base a base nutrient. Um, I know you mentioned the three part. Now, does Growmore have anything else if you don't want to use a, like a more that's a like a you know quality chemical based nutrient? I guess I'll categorize it as. Do you guys have any organic organic synthetic mixes or any other base nutrients? Yeah, you know, we have a really great, and what a lot of guys in Colorado specifically that are having issues with buying all these liquids, but, you know, we're basically paying for, for water in a certain capacity. You know, certain things okay. have to be reacted with each other to be soluble, tested, and make sure that they're compatible. You know, I used to work on a hydroponic lettuce uh, facility and we had few stock tanks. So I was mixing calcium nit, you know, stock A and stock B tank and then an acidifying tank for, for the third tank. So, you know, I'm mixing all these raw salts, you know, calcium nitrate, potassium nitrate, magnesium sulfate, monopotassium, uh, mono, yeah, monopotassium phosphate, um, all these sorts of things, right? Well, trying to mix your own salts can get kind of tricky. And again, if you want to create a 0 10 10, um, maxi, not maxi plex, I can't think of what the name is. Is Seagro uh, dry organic? Seagro is exactly what I was going to suggest. So, yes, essentially Seagro is a synthetic organic blend, the organics oh, in it being the seaweed, the blood meal, all these things, and then having, uh, um, uh, you know, the synthetic base of it too. So we have per- it's perfect for veg and a bloom one. you got the triple 16, which is a 1-1-1 ratio of NPK, and then you got the 4-26-26, which is like a 1-5-5, which is very similar to the uh, Luc- Lucas formula, I believe, is a... One, two. There's not as much nitrogen in the other Seagirl 42626, but most people who are using CalMags, you know, you got to remember that's a 2% calcium in most CalMag formulas. So you got um, two Seagirl two formulations? Two Seagirl formulations. One is like a veg slash transition, and then there's one that's like a bloom. So the 161616 16, 16 is mostly for veg, and people transition that to bloom. A lot of guys that use water solubles out there listening for like a triple 20, it's very similar to that same one, one, one ratio. Right. And then the four twenty six twenty six, um, you know, is the, is the, is the bloom formula. You're getting the extra P you're getting the extra K and there's still a little bit of nitrogen in there. Right. How much, uh, how much solution can you like make? Do you know off the top of your head, for example, I'm seeing your guys like five pounder isn't much. It looks like it's 18 bucks or something. I'm just looking online here real quick. How much right. solution does that make when you're watering? And do you know that? I'm kind of curious to get the value out of this because without yeah. the water, I'm sure it's damn economical is what I'm assuming. Very economical as a base nutrient. And a lot of people I talk to utilize more of their money for uh, amendments, additives that want some more expensive additives. they got to pull back on some of their base costs. So that's what they're doing. Just to answer that question in two ways. One, you obviously want to target EC for your base nutrient whenever you're feeding. So a lot of people say you want 60% of your feed to be base. So if I want 1,000 PPMs, I want 600 PPMs in my base. Um, Typically, they say you can put a pound in 100 gallons, which breaks down to being a teaspoon a gallon. That'll raise your EC or PPMs about 400 parts per million, right? Right. So if you look at it that way, a pound in 100 gallons, you're getting 500 gallons of solution out of your five-pound bag. Yeah, that's pretty pretty damn economical. Yeah. Right. Now, of I'll course, say. when you want to feed them a little bit heavier, you're going to increase that by maybe a teaspoon and a half. But again, it's going from 500, not half of it. It's going to be, uh, you know, maybe down to three 330 gallons once you like start to kick it up. And again, when you're in veg, you don't you know need as much either. You're using a lot less. So, you know, we typically say a 25 pound bag of it treats 2,500 gallons. But um, a lot of guys sometimes, too, depending on their media, will hit an intermittent feed. They'll just feed it a little bit heavier and then uh, just kind of let it work. Of course, 
you know, anybody that's doing peat or sunshine or cocoa mixes can kind of get away with it because those organic elements in Seagrow can break down much easier. But I got guys that grow in rock wool. I know one of your listeners pretty well that has talked to me a lot that uses rock wool, and he uses Seagrow as his base, you know, and he uses, I think, a quarter teaspoon initially or half a teaspoon per gallon. I got to look at his feed, how it works exactly. But then he kind of ramps it up from there as well. And that's all he uses for base. And in Rockwell, he says it's, it works. He hasn't had anything work better. Let me ask you a couple of quick, I don't know, I guess I'll call them industry questions. If you don't want to answer, that's cool, whatever. As far as I'm assuming, Grow More is out in Cali. I mean, you guys are in Cali. You have probably more product there than anywhere else in the industry on a multitude of levels, you know, hydroponic, agriculture, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. don't see a lot of you in Colorado. I know your bottles, your quartz are more affordable than a lot of things out there. And I also heard through the grapevine that you guys even do some bottling or private labeling or whatever you want to call it for some other nutrient companies, uh, where I, that makes me feel like sometimes when you're buying the $39 bottle of whatever Fulvic or something, you're pretty much paying for like the label artwork and the, you know, because I see your guys' Folix pretty damn affair, uh, affordable in comparison. Yeah, so, and then- I'll, I'll answer. I'll answer that in a certain way without throwing anyone under the bus. Um, I don't know of any other nutrient manufacturer in the United States that formulates and bottles everything in 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 house meaning that most other nutrient companies have to go to a third-party manufacturer, hence someone like Growmore, not saying we are or aren't, and buy 275-gallon totes that they re-bottle and do it. The reason why Growmore's products are so cheap is because we're limiting the supply chain. If you go and buy uh, a pound of produce from some uh, a grower, you're going to obviously get the best price. As soon as that guy grabs it from the grower and has to go sell it to a distributor or someone else bigger, they're adding a point on that or yeah. however much they want to add to their, their, their produce, right? So Definitely. essentially it's the down the line. You're just getting taxed for these companies that are basically getting it from Growmore and, you know, not necessarily a company like Growmore. I just said that in jest. But, you know, so, yeah, that's the reason why the price is so cheap. People think, oh, well, it's got to be less quality. It's like, no, our supply chain is limited. When we buy uh, uh, a rail car full of urea and monopotassium phosphate, uh, yeah, our pricing is going to be pretty good. And so when we make our product and sell to a distributor like Sunlight or Hydrofarm or BWGS, their starting point for where they have to add their price to the dealer and then to the end user is just much less. So when they want a 35% margin and then they get a 50% margin that the dealer gets to the end user, of course, it's, the discount wipes a lot of that out when you are an end user. But that's the reason why the products are so cheap, not because we use crappy raw materials, not because of anything else. And you said it, dude, these companies have a large marketing budget. They advertise heavily in maximum yield and a lot of other venues. They have a lot of money into their websites. They have a lot of sales reps across the country. That stuff all costs money. So, of course, they got to charge a premium and they got to get their margins. So, hence their products being more expensive. You know, what's inside the bottle and inside the bag normally isn't really that costly. It's just everything that goes on about it. And again, to survive in this in this industry and market, you know, businesses have to do that and get the margin they need to survive. At Growmore, our margin is what we need to get to, you know, survive. And we've been around for almost a hundred years coming up in two more years, a hundred year anniversary. So right. pretty sure we're not going anywhere either. You guys are getting some good rain out there right here. My parents live up in the central Valley area and it sounds like the whole state's going to get some action out there. 
oh, we're getting dumped on tomorrow and next week. Yeah, you know, your parents being in the Central Valley, this drought's been exacerbated for hydroponic food production because, you know, I got guys that are growing almonds in the Central Valley where you get 4,000 pounds an acre compared to up in the Chico area by Sierra Nevada Brewery, best brewery out there, uh, you know, where they're getting 2,500 at most pounds an acre. The problem is they have no water in the Central Valley to actually feed these trees. So there's guys pulling up. 20-acre almond orchards that, you know, they're just literally pulling out of the ground, you know, millions of dollars, and it's just really unfortunate about how this drought's really uh, really affected, you know, nut prices and, and, and produce in general, which is why I think now, you know, I'm working with a hydroponic strawberry farm and a lettuce farm, and uh, uh, Howling's that does the hydroponics inside, there's, they started a 30-acre cocoa tomato um, greenhouse, so, I mean, there's been more you know, um, buzz around this hydroponic food production. And uh, I think that uh, until this mega drought that we're having in California kind of subsides, uh, you gotta, you got to look at it because 75% of the produce that's grown for the United States is, is done in, in California and Mexico, you know, Baja and, and the Sinaloa. Yeah. Region, so. I haven't stopped thinking about Sierra Nevada since you said it. So the, <laughs> there's, there's summer lagers, my summer beer. I like special order, like cases of their cans of that out here. I love it. Uh, like, but yeah, hopefully it, it, we can get. Go ahead. No, no, I'm saying I, I, I uh, have a few. Uh, as they say up north of your parents in Kern County, they call them almonds, and uh, south they call them almonds. And I never understood that. And then they said, "Well, you don't call salmon salmon," and I said, "Yeah, but you don't call walnuts walnuts." So you're not really making sense here. But uh, yeah, so there's almonds in Northern California and almonds in the Central Valley, north of Kern County. Um, but again, yeah, you know, back to your whole thing. Um, Gromart does have quality raw materials. We obviously have chemists that are on staff here. My office is right behind the lab. I can hear them coughing as we're doing the interview. Um, you know, we obviously manufacture and formulate everything here ourselves. Um, and, you know, some companies will source raw materials. And not, to give them credit, whoever does either blend for them or how they, they bottle, you know, may buy some raw materials from us. But that only goes to speak of uh, the respect they have for Gromart as a manufacturer and obviously quality formulator. Right. Yeah, Hell yeah. Hell so man. again, at the end of the day, I think that uh, I think the industry will be changing somewhat, and the price on most things are going to have to come down just because of the uh, the end price of the goods. You know, there'll always be those little boutique brands, but um, I think the door is closing, if not closed, for any new formulators or manufacturers or or nutrient companies that want to come in and and get it. The 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 trend I see now more is is store owners want to make their own store label and brand so they can hold on to margin. And, you know, if they want to buy a CalMag Plus from Botanicare and they want to sell it for 40 bucks a gallon, they're going to buy it from a formulator like us or someone else and, and an ag formulator, get it for 10 and then Ooh. charge their customers 25 and, you know, hey, they're still making money instead of having to discount that CalMag Plus, you know, 10 points over their cost. Do you think there's room cost. for, like, another, if we could do a Jude Gross three-part? Probably out, right? <laughs> Dude Bloom, man. Dude Bloom. Exactly. Love Word, it. Word. Uh, so I guess Go we're going off topic. I'm sorry. So, uh, no, you know, again, hydroponics in general and the fungi, obviously the research shows that the benefits are greatest, um, you know, where there's a little bit not as much phosphorus. So, again, inoculating early on is really important. Um uh -huh. Hey, what's uh, you up know, with and the again, trichoderma, man? I wanted to get you get you change your tack to trichoderma because there's so trich, much controversy okay, cool. about it, and uh, I I'm I'm sure because uh, you know there's big companies like BioWorks and whatnot that have you know made their living on trichoderma species, man. 
um, in big ag, I'm saying. Trichoderma is very, very useful, and specific strains of it are, are absolutely valuable, man. So what's up with it? So trikes... And I put it in the charge. Yeah, so um, because you already... We've we talked about what specific, you know, trichoderma spores are in there, and I, I think trichodermic species in general, we'll just talk a little bit about them. You know, they're free-living fungi that are real common in soil and root ecosystems. Again, hydroponics, we're creating our own media. They're not common in these ecosystems that we're creating because we're playing, you know, master of the domain there. So this is all research-based, you know, information that I get and base my, my opinion on. And so recent discoveries really show that they're opportunistic, opportunistic plant, you know, symbionts as well as being parasites of other fungi. Um, for many years, the ability of these, these fungi to increase the rate of plant growth and development, um, especially their ability to cause the production of more robust roots has really been known. Um, now the, really the mechanisms for how these abilities come to, to weight are really just being understood. So trike species, high level of genetic diversity, can produce a wide range of products um, in this commercial and uh, hydroponic application. So again, the species specific uh, are, are really important, but you know, they, they produce a lot of, uh, I can't think of the word, Extra, no, it's extracellular proteins, right? And so they're best known to produce enzymes that degrade cellulose and, and chitin. And although they also produce other useful enzymes. But in addition, the different strains produce more than 100 different metabolites that have known antibiotic activity. So they're really building up that, that, that defense system for, for, for pathogens and illness within your plants. Um, Again, we talked about Pythium, Botrytis, Fusarium, Phytophthora. Um, The the few specific species that are in recharge, um, they are used as a biological control agent in in ag and in nature against those pathogenic fungi I just talked about. Right. So... um, Putting the warriors in there. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, and and I guess uh, certain strains of them are um, are highly, you know, rhizosphere competent. They're they're, they're able to colonize and grow on roots as they develop, you know. Um, And so they can really be added to soil or or seeds even and soaked by by a lot of different methods. So once they come in contact with the rhizosphere, which is why roots and application is so important, they colonize the roots. So... If you use it as a seed treatment, like I, we have a wettable powder here, and uh, is the recharge a wettable powder or is it granular? No, wettable powder. Yeah, okay, it's a, it's a, it's a, so, soluble powder, I should say. Soluble. Yeah, yeah. Well, I call it a wettable powder because, uh, to be truth be told, it's not a hundred. It's not really a soluble, but again, this is just me being a nerd. So the wettable powder, if you're going to use it as a seed treatment, what happens is is they colonize root surfaces even when the roots are below the uh, casing of the seed. It's pretty crazy, right? Wow. Um, and they can colonize on the exterior of the shell when the root breaks through. It can, um, it can just, you know, connect right on. Sure. Um, yeah, that's so, how these guys are getting such effective you know, when they use all these inoculants in big ag, for the most part, mm-hmm. from what I've seen, they inoculate the seeds and they, they do you know, tens and hundreds of thousands of seeds with a couple of pounds of these products, man. It's pretty amazing. But again, the trichoderma doesn't really have an effect or limited application in biocontrol of pathogenic bacteria. And a real quick explanation of that gets back to what I was saying about colonization is that bacteria generally have a faster growth rate and multiply faster than fungi. Right. So you can't, the, 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 bacteria, the pathogenic bacteria is, is, is outpopulating and outcompeting whatever the fungal can actually, the, the, you know, the trichoderma can help, can sure. help with. 
Um, so again, it's really important that understanding a broad spectrum approach to preventing these plant pathogens is supposed to be incorporated. And so both beneficial bacteria and fungi are likely ideal, but you know um, you, you definitely want to uh, inoculate initially with fungi and then kind of back it up with bacteria. Um, it's just it's just really hard to, uh, to to say exactly when to start inoculating bacteria, but I think if you transplant with the recharge, you're using the treat recharge, you know, starting once you flip and go into flower, maybe starting week two, start inoculating with some of the bacillus spores if you want to do it then, and, and your rhizosphere should be inoculated well enough and colonized well enough with with your uh, you know trichoderma and your other beneficial fungal spores. And again, your phosphorus it. levels are low, so. Yeah, I use it as soon as I have roots. Yeah, me too, man. It blows up veg, you know, just big leaves, deep green, a lot of what do they call nitrifying bacteria. Or, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, it delivers a lot of nitrogen. I don't know. I, I love it in veg. I, I cut it. I use it from probably, I don't know, rooted clone all the way to probably week five. I'll start cutting it out at week five. Same as me, man. Yeah. I figure if it's got the mycorrhizae in there, I might as well start using it once I see roots. So I like mm-hmm. it. Yeah, I got no I mean, problem. Uh, no, hit it, Jake. No, so obviously the, the trichoderma is penetrating the cells of the root system and it, it res- puts a response, triggers a response in the plant that walls off everything else. It like encloses the trichoderma in the cells and prevents it from getting any further into the living root tissue. And so when it triggers this response, the plant's natural defense mechanism is activated and that's when the systemic resistance induced. And we talk about SAR all the time uh, as far as, you know, creating, uh, triggering the plant to put its defense factors, which increase, uh, you know, oil and resin producing glands and a lot of other, um, symbiotic relationships. So, wow, that's interesting. Yeah. So although, even though the trichoderma has gained early entry into the plant tissue, it doesn't cause any disease or damage because both the plant and the trike benefit from their symbiotic relationship. Right. And, uh, right. you know, the plant gets protection while the trike receives an ecological niche and food from the plant, because as we know, the root exudates, the sugars, the carbs, all the other things that are, are being shot out by the root system, are obviously being fed simultaneous by the, by the trikes that are inside the root zone. So it's a real interesting, cool, uh, you know, cool cool shit yeah definitely is man like i said i don't pretend to understand it i just know what works <laughs> well uh, you know obviously they, they, the trichoderma species are going to grow and proliferate best when there's abundant healthy roots so that's why it's important people say oh i just inoc- i just transplant when i inoculate i inoculate when i transplant and then i just kind of let it go because it's it's already attached to the root zone right well obviously they've evolved you know numerous mechanisms to attack other fungi and enhancing plant regrowth so why wouldn't you want to inoculate and create the most diverse microbial population you can in your root system we have so much control in this environment as we talked about earlier control it even more you know um yeah i don't think so, you can just inoculate once man and get real real big benefit from it not with all the the chemical fertilizer we're dumping on there all the, all the high phosphorus and nitrogen no way man right so I guess in, in hydroponic settings, the viability and benefits of the trike, um, you know, they're, the, 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 the trikes are some of the most effective beneficial microbes in hydroponic settings. So yeah, um, I, agree. I, I guess there are certain trike species that don't really uh, control or eliminate all these pathogens. Um, but, there, you know, there are certain trike species that aren't in, I'll just say this, there, there are certain trike species, there's a couple that aren't in recharge that actually eliminate all pathogens in, in organic and organic medias, which you really don't want to put in your system because they just overtake everything. They're like the, you know, Shaquille O'Neal on the basketball court just dominating everything else that comes through, just putting their hand above the rim and like, nope, you're not coming in. Right, right. right. Now you want to yeah. balance, man. 
Yeah, you definitely want to balance. So, um, yeah, it's again, just to conclude, the trikes are really shown across a wider range of studies that I've looked at to be effective biocontrol agents. Um, certain strains of it, uh, the Harzian, what, what are some of the strains that are in recharge again, just I, for your I, listeners to remember? Reci and Harzarium. Yeah, okay, Those so especially... I've only got two, and I've got a quarter million of each. <laughs> Not too shabby, but, you know, specifically, the the Harzanium are demonstrated to really increase the uptake and concentration of a variety of nutrients. So, more specifically, copper, phosphorus, iron, and manganese. You know, we were talking about beneficial fungal spores in general with the phosphorus uptake, but, again, that specific trike species helps. And so... Um, uh, I don't know, man. Increased uptake really is just improving all other plant uptake mechanisms and all the other metabolism, uh, the metabolites that are going on in there. Yeah. You know? so, well, it does make sense, man. It does make sense. Believe it or not, I am following you, Jake. No, so I, I, guess, I can tell you, my, my sponge is full, man. It's like I just got out of class over here. I mean, well, do you want to talk all... a little bit about trike and cocoa real quick? Um, yeah, no, I kind of I mean, thought. You can always take more. So well, I guess, you know, inorganic substrates, we'll talk about cocoa, are, are more effectively colonized by bacteria, while organic substrates are more effectively colonized by fungi. So while trichoderma species have been shown to establish and proliferate in a you know, wide range of mediums, colonization um, you know, may be greater in organic mediums such as cocoa core. So when cocoa core and rock wool were compared with uh, after inoculation with that trichoderma oh harzianum, it was found that the what did they find? <laughs> it was found that the colonization was greater in the cocoa, while the rock wool contained the highest amount of this uh, Pseudomonas bacteria. And so the Harzanium strings were applied to transplanting to the core and the rock wool. Um, the Fusarium crown and root rot incidence of uh, uh, was it greenhouse grown tomatoes was reduced like up to. 80% in cocoa core slabs, and I think like 70% rock wool slabs, with yield increases of uh, anywhere between 10 and 37% in cocoa, and like 5 and 25% in rock wool. So, inoculating your trike in your cocoa, actually, in real studies, I'm trying to think where the study was done. It sounds like I don't a T-shirt, man. Inoculating yeah, man. Yeah, I can email you this, the the study if you uh, if you get to me and you want to post the link to it because uh, it was pretty interesting though. And again, all they inoculated with was that specific trichoderma species that's in recharge, the you know the Harzanium. And again, yeah. you talk about that increase in yield and you know um, any materials that are high in the lignocellulose are the organic media, straw, wood bark, cocoa fiber. So this really makes cocoa an ideal environment for recharge. But yeah. don't don't let that discredit rock wool because it showed in that study with the greenhouse uh, uh, tomatoes that it still it still helped. Yeah, exactly. So don't let someone turn their nose and say, oh, I just want to run a sterile environment. Well, you can I run a sterile know. environment or you can increase your yield 5 to 25%. You choose. Well spoken, my friend. Well spoken. Right. Right. So, uh, yeah. Again, the last thing I want to touch on, Scotty, is the optimum temperature for trikes, too. Um, a lot of people put chillers in their water because their rooms get really, really hot. Um, and just like any other living thing, uh, the trichoderma species have temperature, you know, optimum temperature for rapid colonization and bioactivity. So right. for most of the commonly applied species in one specific to recharge, this is about like 75 to 85 degrees with about 80 degrees being ideal. So if conditions are too cold, awesome. though, the colonization of the trike is going to slow and even cease. If it's too warm, they die back, and the trike may be 
come out, compete, is leaving the door open for other forms of microbial species to take hold. Yeah, I think I'm getting it, man. And that's why you can, where I couldn't run deep water culture with no chiller before, with a ton of recharge, I can run, you know, a ton of trichoderma in the mix. I can start run, or I can run a deep water culture system with aeration and circulation, but no chiller. And I can run temperatures into the 80s and still not getting my any kind of, uh, you know, uh, fusarium or any kind of rot. So it's right, pretty amazing. Right, because of course the trikes at that point are really colonizing, and it's, it's the environment, the you know, the window that they like to have. Um, so that's the culprit, though. I was always wondering. I knew there was something in there that was that was. You know, keeping the uh, you know the wolves at bay, just to, you know, so to speak. And yeah, I think it really is. I'm leaning towards the trichoderma being the real de- determining factor there. You know, a lot of people too. Just so we we were talking a little bit about pythium before. I think a lot of hydroponic growers attribute that root browning disease to these pythium waterborne pathogens. When really the major one of the major causes of the root browning is just the root zone oxygen starvation usually caused by overly warm or waterlogged media. You know, if it's just saturated in water, you know, the, the, there's not enough oxygen traveling through there, and uh, the dissolved right. oxygen saturation point is just is, is too, uh, too low for them to do it. So, you know, nutrient salts don't leak into the roots of the plant. Nutrient uptake is an active process which has, you know, relies on a lot of factors, and one of which is, is satisfactory levels of oxygen being available to the roots of the plants. So uh, roots are pumping the nutrients from outside the root to the inside where they're taken up to and transported to the leaves, and this process requires energy, hence photosynthesis, and the roots get their energy from respiration. Respiration requires this energy, which is achieved by burning sugars, carbohydrates, kelp, fish, uh, molasses-based glucose and fructose sweeteners, not right. the sucralose-based sucralose, uh, sweeteners. I'm not going to... I don't want to name any companies' names, but most of the watery sugar sweetener products are all sucralose-based, right? And unfortunately, the 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 roots and the microbes can't, you know, they have to, they need sucralase to break it down into a usable sugar form for them. So you're creating another step in a plant's short life cycle, and the enzymes just sometimes don't even care; they don't want to want to waste it. Right. So then, obviously, part of that sugar is made in the leaves by photosynthesis and transported to the, the, the roots, that's how they get the sugar, you know, to power those nutrient pumps when it's not supplied by us. But again, we're controlling the environment. We want to supply as much uh, efficient energy burning as, as possible instead of leading it all up to the plant. Um, yeah, I mean, you got to set these things up to when you just can't throw them, you know, great quality food if the environment isn't right, or even, the you know, like with the oxygenation, what you were talking about in the root zone. You know, it's like somebody, you know, giving you a, one of those Kobe beef steaks, while you're choking, you know what I mean? Or, you know what I mean? Or while, you know, your, your mouth and nose are duct tape, you know? Good luck, man. Well, you know, we just talked about photosynthesis uh, and made, the sugars are made in the leaves and they're driven down into the root, which is why we talked about those root exudates and those are the roots are shooting those things out when they're brought. But unlike sugar, we just, we're on the oxygen, touch, we're touching on that right now. So unlike sugar, oxygen is not transported from the leaves to the roots, which really means the roots got to get their own oxygen, right? So sure. the roots can't get sufficient amount of oxygen because of excessively warm water or nutrient or because there isn't enough airspace in the growing media, they're too yeah, the- tight. You know, their pumping capacity is totally shut off and the result of this is the plant becomes starved of all that nutrition so there's a lot of factors that determine dissolved oxygen levels in water and this is really catered a lot to your dwc growers too it's uh they're always you know, bitching we ignore them man so come on man this is for there y'all, you go man. so i guess uh, you know if, if you have uh how do i say it determining oxygen dissolved oxygen levels in water is what i'm talking about so i guess if fresh water can hold 
you know, eight parts per million of oxygen at 77 degrees, while at 68 degrees, water can hold as much as nine parts per million of oxygen. So the colder water gets the more oxygen it can retain. Yes. The warmer water gets the less oxygen it can retain. But if water's too cold, the nutrient uptake and growth rates will be reduced. So there's a fine balance and there's this fine line where you don't want to go, you know, too cold, even though you can get more oxygen in there. Um, and again, you don't want it to be too warm where it's choking out oxygen. So the oxygen content and water temperature are are um, are pretty uh, damn important. Uh, posit- positive correl- positive correlation. So when one goes up, the other one goes up. When one goes down, the other one goes down. Sure. Right? Another negative correlation. In, Sorry. In hydro, I mean, you're keeping your water water uh, cooler. I mean, my my bedroom sitting at 85, you know, all light, which has to make me think my soil is at least probably going to get up to upper 70s or 80 in my black nursery pots where that's party time for the trichoderma, where they're not going to be as, uh, I guess I'm going to say, active in the cooler water, which uh, to me makes me lean. Again, my philosophy is like clean and, and I'm, it's changing every time we talk. But mm-hmm. in hydro, it's clean and sterile. In soil, soilless, it's like dirty and active. I'm trying but, to get uh, to him, Jake. I'm trying to get to him, brother. <laughs> I got a guy that runs uh, four by eight tables. He's in an environment where he can't go in and out of his grow facility very easily and bring in a bunch of new media. His waste, he can't bring in out, you know, trash bags of uh, cocoa or rock wool. So his system is an ebb and flow, and he actually grows in hydrogen trays. Fills up the whole tray with hydrogen. Has these netty pots that are filled with. Uh, uh, some, we're, we're experimenting with cocoa and certain size Grodan um, just to keep it a little bit smaller. Uh, some of the smaller Grodan, not the large Hugo uh, cubes or slabs. And essentially, you know, that's a media where you would think, okay, there's lots of oxygen. There's a lot of stuff going on. The reservoir, it's ebb and flow. There's plenty of, uh, of things. Uh, he, he seems to think, oh, it's a sterile environment. I don't have any reason to use the, a wettable powder form of mycorrhiza, you know, granular obviously won't work unless I just transplant it when it's a cut into this cube and maybe get it there. And I told him, I'm like, you couldn't be more wrong. You know, um, of course, with he's having the same thing. It's the same, it's the root rot issues that are going on. He's got lots of oxygen in his water because obviously his media allows that too. And with the ebb and flow feeding three times a day, there's plenty of water movement. Yeah. He's got air stones in circulation temperatures are a little warm and um you know i think with the pumps and everything that goes in there uh, and not inoculating he's 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 missing this key this this key factor and this is a this is a larger uh, a larger operation you know with 30 lights and so you know the, the, hey man, the maybe his daddy did it like nice, that but. man maybe his granddaddy grew like that his granddaddy <laughs> i think it was his buddy <laughs> back in NY. yeah but it's but, the same uh, thing man that's a, you know it's it's uh you know human nature man to do what you're comfortable yeah. with and to do what used to work in the past you know i gotta say though we gotta talk a little bit about we just talked about uh, oxygen content something really key that i just thought about um thinking of this guy he had ph issues um, and which brings me to optimum pH for trikes. You know, uh, people think, oh, you know, these certain fungal spores, they like a certain pH. You know, in, in, in ag, we've studied a little bit and shown that, you know, whether you watered in a 9.0 solution or a 5.0 solution, there's certain um, endo and ecto mycorrhizal spores created an environment in the root zone to make it like 6.8. That's just what they liked. And that's where I was trying to get to earlier, where when you use these inoculants, you can actually create a media that's, that's more stable across. So whether you use these mycorrhizal spores in soil or cocoa or you know even rock wool in the wettable powder form when you when you transplant you know they're they're creating an environment that's best suited for them to to survive and thrive but when you talk about trikes optimum ph um 
Well, trichoderma fungi in general vary between species for optimum pH, but most fungi thrive in semi-acidic conditions. Again, 7.0 is basic, hence 6.8 being somewhat acidic. Um, the, the cellulase um, production by trich, you know, harzanaeum, which we keep, to, I keep bringing this up just because it really relates to recharge, is really demonstrated at pHs of like 5.2 to 6.2 with 5.5 being the ideal. Once you get over 6.0, it reduces that cellulase production and therefore it's advisable from my perspective and anyone that I've ever talked to that the optimum pH for trikes and hydro is like 5.6 to, you know, 5.9. I would say 5.5 to 6.0. Some guys say, no, nah, keep it at 5.8. And some dudes do it at 5.6. But really, 5.5 to 6.0 um, is an optimum pH for the trikes. Whether your media is that or your solution, you know, you could water in your solution at, uh, I know guys that um, have their cocoa and smart pots, they water in at like, uh, you know, maybe 6.0, but when they get test their runoff, it's coming out at like a 5.5. You know, hey, that's a great environment for your trikes. So other yeah. guys will water in at 5.5. They test their runoff, it's at 6.5. You know, so you really just got to focus more on the pH of your media and not really of your water. And that's, again, what we talk about. These trichoderma and other species microbes are all colonizing your, your media. They're not colonizing in your water. Right. So uh, don't focus so much on the pH of your water. It's really important to test your runoff and, and, and or, uh, you know, Blue Lab makes a, a great soil pen meter that you can use in cocoa too. Um, so a lot of guys uh, can utilize that to really find out what the pH of their media is besides just using runoff as the only indicator because that's yeah. not a true, you know, indicator of it. Yeah, I'm actually looking forward to getting one of those Blue Lab probes, man. I was at uh, yeah, you know, a couple you have days a, ago and saw that they had they have a one that you just can stick straight in the soil, man. So exactly, it's that plastic stick, yeah. Are you and you can detach that. Huh? Scott, Scotty used to say that he now you're going to start pH in that you weren't really too concerned with pH, figuring that you know your soil microbiology is doing a lot of the work for you. But from what we're hearing from Jacob, we want to keep it you know somewhat dialed in. But he's saying you, you do, want to, you do. Yeah, you want to have it somewhere between five, you know, five and a half and six is what I'm getting. Yeah, and five and a half to six is for trichoderma species specifically, right? We're not talking about um, mycorrhizal uh, right. fungals. We're not talking about bacillus or anything right. else, right? We're just talking about trichs. So people that are using okay. recharge initially on, it's it should be important to keep your your media pH around that for an optimum, you know, production and, uh, you know, cellulase benefits. So we're talking about enzymes again, you know, which ties into to the biocozyme and other products. If you're using an enzymatic formula, this, again, is really helpful for, for that. And that's why typically enzymatic formulas are, are more acidic than not because of their, uh, you know, in the, an ideal environment for the enzymes that are floating around in the solution. Yeah. Um, What's the best overall pH? That's what I want to know because I'm using all, everything you mentioned at the same time. I think you want pH to float, man. I, I, you kind of, you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't focus too much on like what's your ideal pH because then I, I tell a guy, well, I really like it to be just 6.0. It's real basic. It's in the middle, 6.3. You're fine. Some guys in soil say, oh, you know, I put mine at like 6.5. That's fine. Uh, again, it's going to fluctuate through throughout time. And, and to be honest, based on certain feeds, if you follow the feed chart and you were to use uh, a pH neutral of 7.0 water and did the feed throughout the weeks, your pH is going to change based on the products you're using, right? Um, yeah, I mean that's what's happening to me. I created a little you know the lucky perfect storm of everything that so so my recharge just i kind of happened into where it works awesome i use cocoa i use a bit of synthetic nutrient that that lowers my ph not you know just with the combination of the water and the nutrient that i'm using where mm -hmm. you know i've got a five five to six oh ph range in my so in my cocoa and that's why i'm 
jumping up and down swearing this stuff works you can do anything it works you know because i've got that perfect uh, environment in my soil i mean i couldn't agree with i agree with everything you just said really and and again getting back to not getting too hung up on it like uh scotty said the ebb and flow of your ph as your your plants kind of move on is great but ultimately if you can keep it around 6.0 whether it be 5.8 whether it be 6.3 you know try to keep it there but again the beneficials if you are inoculating don't be surprised if your ph fluctuates in your media regardless of how what ph you're watering it at you know and again that they're creating the environment and they're getting cozy you know they're moving in their apartment and they're just they're they're getting settled so you know don't 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 hem up on it too much but i think if you're growing in soil you don't want to go over six eight obviously if you're oh, growing yeah. in cocoa or rock wool you know try to shoot for watering in at 6.0 and no matter what anything else is doing most nutrients are going to be available at that ph and uh yeah i'm just kind of it makes good sense i don't want to get too hemmed up yeah but, uh yeah guys i hope that was folks. a i hope that was um comprehensive enough and not too Hell yeah too, uh, We'll let you go. We'll let you get some work done in the office there, and uh, we'll be back, guys, with Dude Grow Show. Uh, see you in a minute. Yeah, all right. Later.